Welcome to Interchain FM, where we dive into the frontier of the blockchain space. We are now in the third generation of blockchain tech, where a burgeoning multi-chain ecosystem is about to explode into what we call the decentralized web. Where ETH is to the mainframe computing era of the internet, Cosmos is to the PC era. If you're seeking alpha in the Cosmos ecosystem, look no further. This is the destination for your exponential learning experience. Interchain FM is where you could get the download on all of the high signal projects building bridges to one another and how you can participate in the future of the internet. In this episode, we bring back Dan Edelbeck, the CEO of Exidio, the development team that powers the decentralized VPN project Sentinel. You also hear from a special guest who is somewhat of a celebrity in Russia after gaining notoriety as a hacktivist who built tools that Russian citizens used to combat censorship from the Russian government. Alexander Latrive is now the CEO of Solar Labs and previously built Red Button and VVPN. Red Button is an app used to notify your lawyer if you're ever arrested on protest, and VVPN is a VPN service that thwarted the Russian government when it was attempting to block Telegram. It's always exciting to have guests on who help tie the ideas we talk about on this podcast back to the real world. Until decentralized apps are battle-tested and used for social good out in the real world, much of what is built in the cryptosphere tend to live in the abstract. We covered the implications of big tech's control over speech in the digital world, effectively flowing over to impeding on freedom of speech in MeetSpace. What's more, Exidio and Solar Labs are working together to bring a commercial-grade router to market that will enable individuals like you and me to, air quotes, mine DVPN, HNS, and HNT tokens by providing internet bandwidth to the Sentinel DVPN network. Welcome to the show, Dan and Alex. Very excited to have you here. Hi, guys. Thanks, Django. It's great to be back. Alex, do you have a story to tell us about your political asylum background story in Russia? <laughs> well, yeah, there is some story behind it. And uh, back in times from 2017, I started my battle for the privacy online. We had some really bad things happening uh, back in Russia, where I came from. So basically, government started to try to block certain websites and services. They tried to kind of establish the government censorship all across the internet in Russia. And uh, we, my team was uh, the first team uh, in Russia who stand up against it. And uh, we fought for it and uh, we got uh, our consequences because of that. You know, the uh, Russian government opened a criminal case against us because of us, as they claim, interfering work of the telecommunications in Russia. The things uh, became much worse in 2018 when the Russian government tried to ban Telegram. They failed to do so because of us. In 2020, I was already living in Estonia and uh, was running my own VPN company, like classic VPN company there. I was flying to Russia to have some conference there and I was arrested. As soon as I get out of the jail, I immediately reached to the Estonian embassy and fled away from Russia and I'll get back. So now I'm here and now I have much more freedoms, strength to fight for people's uh, digital uh, rights and privacy. So that's what we exactly doing at the moment, along with Dan and his team. So where is here? Currently, our team is located in Estonia, Tallinn, uh, Estonia known as a digital capital of Europe. 
we have our own governmental blockchain here. Uh, this is the first uh, country in Europe who completely got rid of uh, any paperwork. We got everything digital here. And we have uh, most number of startups per capita in Estonia. There is a such a thing that uh, local Estonians say uh, quite often, you are not Estonian if you don't own your own startup, you know, so that's the way to go. And yeah, we're trying to keep the things like that. And we opened uh, Solar Labs just uh, April this month, uh, joined the battle along with the Sentinel Foundation in Exidio. And now we're one of the major players there. And we are really thrilled and excited to show the new products that are upcoming uh, along with the Exidio team. And we really, really, really hope that uh, it's going to make a difference. Estonia, what was the background again? I vaguely remember that they launched their own local currency and they moved off of uh, what the EU, the euro standard, was it? They haven't launched their own cryptocurrency. Uh, what they did is they used blockchain uh, to maintain communications between different local government authorities. So they keep track of people's data using blockchain. So basically, in Estonia, you can do anything without uh, actually visiting authorities' office. You can apply for a bank loan. You can change your driving license. You can do whatever you want with the government just online. Every person, they have uh, some sort of digital card that you can put into your computer and it acts as a private key that uh, gives you a certificate that you can use to sign any documents and transactions uh, from your computer and broadcast it to the governmental network. You've got blockchain-based digital ID implemented in Estonia already, and it's yeah. working successfully, would you say? Yeah, it is. And even there is a much more countries who is trying to adopt Estonian experience. For example, Ukraine, as long as they have uh, the new president Zelensky, he really pushing uh, the Estonian experience into Ukraine. And they even bought a license for a software that the Estonian government built. So they now trying to build the same thing there. And uh, it's all across the Europe. Uh, I think that uh, Estonia uh, took a leading uh, point there and other countries are following uh, Estonia's lead and uh, trying to implement the same thing. Do you know what this public-private key pair uh, is in? Alex okay. likes to dive into the tech though. Were you asking basically what is the, like, the background coding or the blockchain that's supporting this technology? They have actually uh, their own blockchain and uh, there is uh, apps which is built on top of it. And mostly people interact not with the blockchain directly, but through the apps that government built on top of it. And blockchain is somewhere really, really under the hood uh, just to maintain integrity of data and make sure no one is uh, doing any corruption. No one is doing any uh, data tampering and so on. So, yeah. Why do they need a blockchain for this? That's a good question. Probably it's better to ask Estonian authorities on that. I know that they had a team there and uh, they were reviewing the ways how to prevent malicious uh, actors from the government authorities. Like there was a, a lot of people who was involved in corruption and so on, and uh, they were editing data on their own. And uh, blockchain is a good way to maintain integrity and make sure that no one is tampering it. No one is doing something uh, nasty on the government records. Uh, so they decided to use a blockchain, which is uh, basically a perfect fit for that. Is it a proof of work blockchain? I don't really know, to be honest. 
I didn't went through their code and didn't uh, learn much about how it internally work, but uh, things I know well that it works and uh, it's open source. In Estonia, we even have elections uh, done through the blockchain as well. So everything is open sourced and anyone is free to check it up and uh, see its code and make sure there's uh, nothing is compromised there. I only asked if it was a proof of work blockchain because that's the only way to be censorship resistance against the attacks that you mentioned, you know, yeah, with proof true. of stake, if the countries who are corrupt are signers anyway, it's going to get corrupted. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. That was really interesting. We always want to know about what's happening geopolitically. So uh, yeah, Dan, can you tell us about what's going on with the Exidios partnership or work with Solar Labs? Alex's fight for freedom. He's a testament, right, to exactly what we want to see in a better future for all of us. With censorship coming down really hard in Russia, Alex is a living testament of the type of anti-fragility we want to have in applications and in systems that we're building. Censorship and like restricting of our individual rights and then finding tools to provide privacy and sovereignty, it's always going to be a cat and mouse game. We want to work with people that are fighting that good fight and are not going to throw their hands in the air and say, you know what, this is too difficult and we're not going to give up. So when we started getting connected with Alex and we kind of found out about his story and then his background and then he's already run a VPN company, it was super obvious that this is a perfect fit for kind of an extension of our team. So we work really closely and they have their own company and they're operating independently. But we are going to be coming together, like you said, Chango, at the beginning to bring a product to market, a router. That will be a really great tool for the everyday consumer to provide better privacy for themselves, to be able to participate in Web3, and also to be able to get an end-to-end encrypted connection and have easy consumer application they can use to be able to get better privacy online. We're never going to claim that anything built by Solar Labs or Exidio, one application is going to be a silver bullet, and now all of a sudden every attack vector is taken care of and you're perfectly private online. But we need to continue to provide more and more solutions, and we need to continue to offer opportunities for consumers to fight back. It's interesting that you mentioned Web3, because I think what's missing from a lot of the wider conversation right now is a clear definition about what that means, because Mm -hmm. a lot of people who are throwing around this term Web3, they're thinking, we're talking about an application running on top of Ethereum or Polkadot, you know, or it's like synonymous with Web3 Foundation or any of the ETH killers. What they're saying is OpenSea is still going to operate on Web3 because it's on Ethereum or like, I'm still going to be able to access Curve, Yearn, Uniswap, Apes, Punks, whatever. But what they failed to piece together, you know, like the last missing critical piece of the puzzle is the fact that, okay, well, what happens when China comes in, inspects an IP packet, and then it mm-hmm. blocks its citizens from utilizing Yearn just from like the UI level, you know, it could go to a server and like censor that. Those are fundamentally low-level infrastructure problems that aren't being solved in what people are calling Web3. So right now we're saying with decentralized web, you know, when I mentioned decentralized web, I try to use this term D-Web as a sort of decoupling with Web3, even though they Mm -hmm. should be treated synonymously. But when I say D-Web, it's more about, you know, at the infrastructure level, where are the choke points in the low-level internet protocol where governments could come in and censor people meaningfully, right? So that... When we're talking about a decentralized web, we're talking about that instead of how people are calling Web3 with a high-level app that could easily be censored at any of the choke points. This grandiose idea that is kind of maybe getting meme to the point that it like starts to lose meaning, but this decentralized web needs to have its own 
robustness at every layer of the stack. And that's right. going to take time. So we're seeing kind of the web, like different protocols and different layers of internet connectivity having more decentralized solutions. So Akash is helping us to leverage existing data centers that are unused and leveraging those to be able to provide that access for people that otherwise are depending on AWS or Azure for their cloud hosting service. So at every layer of the stack, we need to start providing more resiliency. Using in Ethereum, if you're completely dependent on Infura and then that is no longer available, now you're completely like breaking the ability to use Web3. This isn't just like, again, there's no one silver bullet. We need to continue to implement it each layer. But uh, I see you rocking the, the Sentinel shirt. Let's see you, Chango. The milky. He's drinking from the... He's, the, dr- uh, he's drinking from the teat of the atom, the cosmos ecosystem. <laughs> <laughs> it's the power of the interoperability the atom ecosystem is bringing. Yeah, absolutely. I just shared my screen and, you know, we're talking about the DWAP SHAD, right? SHAD being an acronym for SIA, Handshake, Akash, and DVPN. This guy is obviously a Chad because he, unlike the boomer virgin Web2 guy who uses every <laughs> centralized choke point on the internet, He's like, oh, I'm going to own my own top-level domain. I'm going to use DVPN. I don't exist online. You can't catch me. Yeah, he's a total Chad. I want to hone in on this, <laughs> this idea of a decentralized web because I talked to uh, Henry DeValence from Penumbra. You know, met him over at Cosmoverse when we were in Lisbon the other week. We talked a little bit about this idea that Right now in the crypto space, we're nowhere near having a decentralized web yet. We're actually somewhere along the 1980s. You know, a lot of people have said we're in the 1990s, but really we're in the 80s in that we don't yet have a standard communication layer where every single blockchain just leverages to be able to talk to each other, right? Right now we have Mm -hmm. ad hoc bridging. Some chains talk to another, but completely ignore others, right? So like mm-hmm. if we have layer twos on Ethereum, they talk to Ethereum and only Ethereum, but they don't necessarily yeah. talk to Cosmos, Solana, whatever. Exactly. And then, you know, if you're trying to bridge to Solana, you need to use like another bridge. So there's like these meta bridges and there's not really been a standard way to-, most, to most of those bridges are custodial. And a lot of them are custodial, right? Yeah. So, so that completely negates the trustlessness of the layer one chains that they're bridging to. And so you're going through basically like a multi-sig to talk to another chain, which is, like you said, custodial. And it doesn't really have that trustlessness factor that we're looking for right now. So really, uh, Ethereum or Solana or Polkadot, they're really considered intranets, right? Because until these chains are all connected to each other in a one single network of networks that we're going to call the Internet of Blockchains or the interchain, then we don't really have Web3. That's why Osmosis is the first step. The biggest opportunity to get more chains connected via IBC is when at the Cosmos Hub, there's shared security. And when that happens, it'll be a lot easier for other chains to also bridge themselves onto IBC and connect to IBC to be able to actually have the internet of uh, blockchains actually function. So to your point, Alex, this is already starting to happen, but it's not going to happen overnight. In a weird way, I almost see that as bullish or optimistic. This isn't supposed to be easy and it's not supposed to be like a simple click. If it was, you would have to question why is it so seamless? And you'd have to question, is it very centralized? At first, I remember going to an Algorand meet like event three years ago in Boston or two and a half years ago. And I was asking Algorand like, 
why are you building another layer one blockchain? Why don't you just try to leverage Ethereum? What are the specific use cases of Algorand that we need to have another layer one blockchain? And I was skeptical because I'm like, this just seems like a money grab where, you know, it's some guy from MIT starting another blockchain and is able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's just like a VC game. And I definitely had a lot of those questions and concerns. But then I also thought it's better that we have kind of this messy, decentralized kind of chaotic world that we're living in with lots of different layer one blockchains and people trying to figure out different technical challenges and what are the different solutions and trying them in prod and then figuring out which ones are actually going to be resilient. What we don't want is the five digital overlords we have right now just repeated in a, in a decade or in six years or whatever. So if we're going to build this decentralized web, it's going to be messy. It's not going to all click right at once. And I think we're all building and hustling to, to cr bring products to market as fast as possible. But to have a web that we want, that gives us sovereignty as individuals, that protects privacy, and that we're able to do things really cool like transfer value and do commerce with the whole world instead of people that are locked out of archaic systems, we need to think about how this is going to be inclusive and how this is going to be resilient over time. It's going to take a lot longer than we want, for better or worse, but I think that's the only way to actually have this be a long-term resilient architecture. It's such a large concept. It's going to take time. If we're still in the 1980s, then it's completely feasible that something like Ethereum and ETH killers are like the mainframes of that time. And then we're going to evolve into PCs, which is what application-specific chains are. Once we converge on a standard communication protocol for these PCs to connect, then that's when we sort of have this decentralized web emerge. From other hand, uh, we can say that imperfection of uh, this web 3.0 or the web, as you say it, uh, is actually it is a benefit and uh, it's perfect in its imperfection because uh, it's truly decentralization since we don't even have uh, the common standard. So uh, we don't see only one team or only one person setting up one standard for all the blockchains. We have some different solutions. And if uh, like getting back to your comparison to mainframes and uh, PCs back in time, this is just like uh, Ethereum and Cosmos is more like a PC and Mac, for example, back in times. So we, they can both exist at the same time and there is a still way to communicate between them. So yeah, I would compare Cosmos more like a Mac way probably and uh, uh, Ethereum is more old school and slowly like a PC maybe, yeah, some sort of that. But there is a still no one told uh, that it's going to be quick and there will be a way to integrate one blockchain with all others uh, like in a quick way uh, and that's actually a benefit uh, like it's not a drawback it's benefit of decentralization we have a true independency we don't need to stick to some sort of standards and every blockchain which is led by some core development team is uh, free to decide uh, whichever they way they would like to go there's a truly free market that's occurring, right? There's so much competition between projects that want to end up being that de facto communication protocol. IBC is one of them. I know Polkadot has their own, but, you know, eventually we're going to converge on one. You know, we're placing bets right now. I kind of see Cosmos as like a mainframe. And then like you're talking about application specific chain. That's where I see DVPN Sentinel more as like a PC, right? Like we have a chain that's optimized for a peer-to-peer -peer bandwidth network. And the features and the decisions that were made in building the Sentinel chain were made for 
the intention of how can we build a global peer-to-peer network where people can offer and route bandwidth? And how do we make that resilient as we have our own validator set that we can manage and as we can scale this with the amount of nodes that we need? I do think that the Cosmos architecture makes a lot of sense because you're able to have that communication and you're able to have seamless friction, like elimination of friction as far as communication between protocols, but they're all individual protocols. And specifically for like Sentinel, Alex might be wanting to earn DVPN tokens. And see, he wants to offer bandwidth to uh, the network, but he's a tech guy and he's really interested in blockchain and he wants to be able to stake his DVPN and earn rewards. But my sister might want to also earn as a part of the Web3 protocol and earn passive income. But maybe she only wants to see money hit her bank account and she wants to know how much she's getting with her node. So she can offer up a node and have UST as the payment mechanism that goes through her node. And then on the back end, that can be automatically converted to dollars that hits her bank account. And she just wants to know that she's getting this much money in her bank account for offering bandwidth to the network. But we can only do that because of IBC and because that flows so seamlessly. The long-term planning that went into the design of Cosmos and the hub and zone model was really intelligent. And it took a long time to actually see it play out. But I think now we're starting to see the true benefits of it. And it was especially prescient because if you look, the layer twos on top of Ethereum have evolved just organically. It does look like Ethereum 1 is a hub and its layer 2s connected to it are zones, right? It does appear as if that's kind of the natural emergence of a model that we're seeing organically. Earlier, I alluded to this shad, the DWeb shad, which is right now not a lot of people realize this or appreciate the fact that there's this sort of holy trinity of DWeb solutions being built within Cosmos right now even though like none of the core teams are necessarily focusing on D-Web work, but there's Akash, DVPN, and you guys work closely with the Handshake Protocol. And then there's the decentralized storage solutions, IPFS and SIA. And what can people use those together for? What's like a user story, for example? For people that aren't aware of those different protocols, like you said, decentralized file storage. So if you have excess data storage on your computer, on your hard drive, you can offer that up to this network and people can use that instead of using Dropbox or Google Cloud and be able to store files. And so that's really cool. And what Sai is doing, Skynet Labs, is they're leveraging this and offering their own native currency for anyone that's offering that bandwidth or offering that uh, storage. People that have data centers or have excess capacity in their data centers can leverage that and offer that up to a shared network. The easiest model for me mentally is Airbnb or it's the sharing economy. But We're bringing the sharing economy to all of the resources that we have already at our fingertips with our unused capacity online. So with cloud storage, Akash is offering that. And then with your bandwidth, with your internet service provider, you're paying for internet. You're not using nearly the amount that you're offered. You're paying with your internet service provider. So you can use that excess bandwidth and offer it to a decentralized network and people can route their traffic through your node. In doing so, they're getting end-to-end encrypted connection. So they're finally getting private access online and they're able to change their IP address to your IP address, which then gives them the ability to have censorship resistance and be able to get access to content that maybe only your node would be able to give them content access to that content and they wouldn't otherwise. Another thing that's really unique about the Sentinel peer-to-peer marketplace for bandwidth is that it is majority of the people offering this are individuals like us out of our homes. So they're residential nodes. These residential nodes don't get flagged as VPN nodes that like a lot, this happens oftentimes for VPN companies. And so because of that, they're far more resilient. 
and it's able to get over the Chinese firewall. It's able to get access to content that otherwise IP addresses that get flagged as VPN providers do not. And then you mentioned Handshake Network. So this is for people that offer, be able to offer their own domains and be able to have resiliency online compared to depending on ICANN. And so using having your own domain and having that sovereignty, you need to be able to connect to those domains. And when you're routing traffic through applications built on Sentinel, you can natively resolve the HNS domains. So these are all different layers of the Web3 stack that you were talking about earlier, Chango, and how we're all providing different solutions, but none of our teams are, we're all independent teams. And so I think that also makes it more resilient compared to someone with a lot of resources and a lot of capacity saying, oh, we're going to solve all these problems, but just plug and play into us. Just to tie it all together in take it to a thousand foot view, which is a lot of people like tangible use cases that they could use for these sorts of system of protocols that you alluded to. For example, chat apps or decentralized Twitter, right? Social networking, people eventually would be able to use this network of these uncensorable tools and be able to do stuff like decentralized Twitter without actually having to go through Twitter itself, right? You could use whatever storage networks that you want using uncensorable identity layers, such as Handshake, for example. And then we could do whatever it is we're used to doing now, right? We could use a chat app. It could be encrypted and it could be pseudonymous in that I could be logging in using like a handshake name called Chango or whatever. And then I could talk to the two of you and we could talk shit about the Russian government. And then for that not to come back to, you know, locate us back like right to our IP, right? That would be, you know, me turning on my Sentinel DVPN um, node and then, you know, accessing somebody else's IP, like somebody else who's giving me VPN access to that network, me logging in with my handshake name, talking to you with your handshake name. And that's how we're identifying each other, not through our SMS numbers, which is completely insecure. And then for whatever we say to be stored on a decentralized storage network, that's the future. That's kind of what I envision users being able to use decentralized web, decentralized web is going to be. And then for us to be protected from the government, Alex, not leaking any metadata like his location to the government when he's talking to me and for the Russian government to easily pinpoint and say, ah, there you are. I'm going to come get you. As far as you can see, there was uh, already one and a half years and MST is still free. So that's the way to go. There's no intermediary that's going to say, ah, you know, you said something bad, naughty, naughty. I'm going to take your name down. Therefore, I'm, I'm going to eliminate your existence on the internet, which is where a lot of our personalities exist. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's the dream, right? And like you said, it's we're probably more like in the 1980s than we are in our minds in the mid to late 90s. But these are all the things that we're building out. And actually, there's a product that just went live in the last couple of weeks. It's called the Handy Host. And the website is handyhost.computer. And this is a software application you can run on your computer now to start earning all of the protocols that we were talking about. So offering your bandwidth to the network through this application and you're earning DVPN tokens, offering your storage of your file storage to the network and you're earning SIA tokens, offering your cloud compute to the network and earning AKT tokens. And then finally, also um, resolving HNS domains through uh, Sentinel and earning handshake domains and earning HNS tokens. So you can do that right now. We can put it in the chat, but it's handyhost.computer. It's a really cool application. And Exidio, we continue to put out applications to make it easier to connect to the Sentinel network. We've been working closely with Solar Labs and we have 
proof of concept application on Android that went out in the last uh, couple of weeks. And we are targeting a date this month, but we'll let the, the fireworks happen when it comes out. But we're targeting a date this month for an iOS and an Android application that's going to be targeted to the mainstream user. So everyone that's traditionally using a VPN and they're used to, you know, even a free VPN online or something that's a really basic application on their phone, that's the application we want to bring to consumers and bring them into the D-Web via something that they're used to. It doesn't have to have a high barrier to entry. How is this work being married to Alex's work with uh, the router? And can you talk to uh, Helium for a little bit as well? Alex's team uh, is working closely with us. We're going to bring a, a router to market with the expertise of Exidio and Solar Labs together. So we've been collaborating and talking about this, and we're working with a few different manufacturers, and we're trying to figure out the one that's going to have the right architecture. And also, with supply chain shortages right now, and especially chip shortages, we want to be able to find ones that we are as confident as possible. They're going to be able to hit the scale that we want for actually bringing these products to the mass consumer. But this router, we're looking at making it modular. So not only will it be a router that um, gives off a Wi-Fi signal, that one of the Wi-Fi signals you can have is, is a decentralized access to DVPN, access to the Sentinel network, and unencrypted. But it'll also be a router that is able to resolve handshake domains because you're connected through the Sentinel network. And then it'll also be a router that you can easily configure on your computer to set up the settings to be able to earn either DVPN tokens or other tokens connected to IBC or earn uh, money straight into your bank account. Part of that modular design of the router is that we're looking at different types of attachments or antennas that can also be a helium hotspot. So you could earn HNS tokens, you can earn DVPN tokens, and you could earn HNT tokens to continue to contribute to growing the internet for everyone via uh, the helium network. That's just going to be figuring out what's the right antenna and what's the right setup for your own home structure that you're able to give off a strong helium hotspot signal while still maintaining the router in your own home. Is this going to open up a mesh network? It's uh, sort of a mesh network already, I guess. Like if we're talking about Helium, there is uh, already uh, like dozens of uh, those hotspots all around the world and uh, you can uh, connect them freely. You can uh, install the hotspot at your apartments, for example, and you can earn their tokens as well. What we are doing is we're trying to combine all the benefits of different networks and uh, make uh, one uh, single product, which uh, gonna take uh, everything amazing from all of those possibilities. Basically, just to make sure that you can come home, unpack the box and install this beauty on your table and make sure it just works without manually setting up all this stuff. And uh, you're basically just... Uh, sharing unused uh, bandwidth, unused uh, internet uh, connectivity capacity that you have, and uh, basically contributing your resources to the network and making sure that you're getting your money back and even some extra out of it. How much is one of these routers? Well, it's still to be determined. As I would say, we would like to offer the product. We don't want to ship junk, that's for sure. Uh, so our router will be high-end, uh, will be equipped with the latest uh, Wi-Fi 6 chips, so will be like uh, the best router you can ever imagine. And uh, of course, uh, we cannot make a price lower than some particular point, but we would like to still make it affordable for uh, all of the 
potential customers. So as soon as it's got announced officially and as soon as we unveil more details, most of the people will be positively surprised by pricing that we offer. Can you give an estimation? Like, would it be in the hundreds of dollars or in the tens of thousands? I wish we can sell one router for a million dollars, you know, that would be a good business. I can just sell one and do nothing for the rest of my life. To be honest, yeah, of course, uh, we're trying to achieve some medium range price uh, of the just regular home router. Basically, as you buy some D-Link or TP-Link router to your home, which costs probably something like 60 to $70, we would like to aim that point as well. So that's actually pretty decent for a commercial product. Just doing the calculation, which is somebody is is effectively buying a piece of hardware and mining those three whitelisted coins that you just mentioned. Would you know at what point they would have break even? You know, maybe like after a year or so, or, you know, is it dependent on the amount of bandwidth they're providing? Exactly. And depending on the amount of people that are connecting to their node, they could be offering bandwidth, but if their node is not competitively priced or their node is in a jurisdiction where no one really wants. I think with Handshake, they need to have people that are actually like connecting to that network. That's when you actually see it. So it's the proof is in the pudding. If people are actually using the protocol and using your node, then you're getting paid for it. I do anticipate that ROI would be around a year. And so it's definitely like the idea is that we're providing better resiliency, providing access to Web3, providing privacy, and it's a positive, you know, income source to be able to offer these resources. So the only way that we're going to beat the Goliath that we're fighting, you know, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Google, is if we're making competitive products that are actually offering the same benefits and the same customer experience, but then they also have the resiliency of Web3. If this is going to be like a higher end product and might have a little bit higher price point, it needs to have significant benefits for consumers to actually want to adopt it. You'd never expect a consumer to run these things altruistically, which means that as long as there's an incentive for them to do so, then they're going to do it no matter what. Especially as enthusiasts of either of those three projects, of course, they're going to want to try it. That's really good. And a one-year break-even point, that's not too bad. I mean, that's kind of similar to buying 15 um, petahash A6 food to mining Bitcoin anyway. That's, you know, your break-even point is going to be that. Makes total sense. Dan, you did allude to a chip shortage right now. What's going on there? There's a global chip shortage. Does it have anything to do with the threat of China coming to become new overlords of Taiwan? What's going on there? (laughs) Taiwan isn't able to keep up with the demand and we're having issues with supply chains. It's not a matter of if the chips exist. It's just a matter of if you can get your hands on them and how to be intentional and working with the right suppliers that know how to get access to chips. We're working with four different manufacturing companies right now and having conversations with them. We're trying to get to understand what is the lay of the land? Are they able to offer different customizability for the product that we're looking for? And are they someone that we're going to be able to rely on as we scale and as we have bigger and bigger orders? It's an inherent challenge that I think everyone's facing right now. It's really like microprocessing chips are really hot commodity right now. What are the competitors to your router, Alex, from Solar Labs? I know there's at least another one. There's Indigenous. I wouldn't say that those are really competitors to us since we also working tightly with them to make sure that we provide a decent uh, software, which is uh, combined with the great hardware that they make. 
It's more like different class products. If we take a look at uh, what Indigitus planned to release, it's uh, more like professional, more expensive product. I wouldn't say that this is something for uh, like everyday customer, for all of the customers. It's not for, for example, uh, my grandma won't use it. And we more aiming uh, like a wider range of uh, audience. So we would like to ship our products to the every home, which is connected to the internet, we would like to bring our hardware and software there. Okay, so Solar Labs' router is more for the individual consumer. Indigitus is made for more institutional? Like, I would say Indigitus is more like for geeks, maybe. For those people who are have a pile of Raspberry Pis on their table, you know, and uh, uh, love uh, digging into some hardware stuff and uh, they probably have their own servers somewhere in the rack and so on. So there is a really narrow field uh, of narrow audience uh, that uh, will consume the Indigitus product. And we aiming like uh, more for everyday use for like a basic customer that you can imagine. So basically for all of those people who were buying, for example, Airport Express from Apple back in times, or for those people who are buying the Link Deer 300, uh, which is probably the most common router on the earth. We would like to aim uh, the same audience, but to bring not just a router as a hardware to build up a Wi-Fi network on your home, but also as a tool to distribute unused resources and get profits out of it. And, and also just like the Helium network, there's tons of different devices that are um, able to connect to the Helium network as hotspots. So we see Sentinel, the Sentinel network in the very same regard. There's going to be multiple companies. There's going to be multiple devices that are able to offer bandwidth. It's open source, so someone could build their own router as well. It's OpenWRT and be able to offer that as well. So for the ultra geek, they might not even buy Indigitus. They might even try to build their own and connect to the Sentinel network. So there's going to be a myriad of different products at different price ranges, depending on you know what the consumers are looking for. That was actually going to be my follow-up question, which is, you know, is this thing open source? Because when you go and buy your router from Best Buy or what have you, the biggest ones are all from proprietary tech oligarchs, right? So it's like Google provides your router or it's Apple and, you know, lots of people in the open source community just don't trust that, right? Like, how can I trust somebody who's going to just report all of my content or like all of the data that goes through there to like some government our goal is to build transparency, not only across the blockchain itself, but uh, in all the products which is based on it. And uh, Rotor is no exception. So the firmware that we built along with Exidio, which will be used in all of those routers, actually, and uh, as an open WRT extension, it's completely open source and every person will be able to go on a GitHub and uh, check its co- source code. Or even if they already own a router which is runs OpenWRT and they feel comfortable with it and they would like to keep it and not to change it to one another, uh, they can just install this package to their existing router and use it to mine Sentinel tokens out of their bandwidth and and so on. So yeah, of course, answering your question, uh, everything that's Sentinel related is uh, open source and should be open source. Let me ask you a tokenomics question, which is, I'm not staking and I don't have any cent tokens. I don't have HNS tokens and I don't have HNT tokens. 
And I'm purely entering this network using this router, right? I'm purely mining these coins by providing bandwidth. From where am I getting paid? Is it just from other users who are just like paying into the network for this bandwidth? This is for DVPN, which I think it makes sense. But how about for Handshake? So with Handshake, there's uh, an agreement with the HMS Foundation to be able to resolve this. HMS Fund, you mean? Okay. Yeah. The the, the community-run fund, right? Yeah. Exactly. Because we're resolving HNS domains, that's how the community run fund has, has said that they want to continue to provide access to people to, to be able to resolve HNS domains. It's from their own treasury that they're paying this out for. For Helium, if you're offering a hotspot, you'd be earning Helium just like you'd be earning HNT tokens like anyone else is offering it uh, to the Helium network. DVPN, i scrolling down the Sentinel Twitter feed. It's you guys announced that you guys are doing some sort of plant scarcity, right? Did you guys change the inflation rate and then drop it every six months? What are the details about that? That's right. So that was announced uh, right at the inception of the blockchain going live at the end of uh, March of this year. So the inflation rate is 49% when the blockchain went live. And every six months, it drops uh, of a percentage of 6%. The last epoch ended at the end of September. The 27th of September, the second epoch began. The annualized uh, inflation rate was 43%. And then at the end of uh, March 2021, it'll go down to 37%. And that's just the standard staking reward. If you're compounding your staking rewards, you're staking your staking rewards, you can get uh, the current APY is about 58%. And there's something like 71 or 72% of the DVPN tokens are the entire supply are being staked to the network. And that number has gone down from about 90% several months ago. And that's a lot of credit due to the growing Cosmos ecosystem, and especially Osmosis and SIFChain and some of the DEXs that are providing awesome LP incentives to people to provide liquidity on, you know, and decentralized finance on Cosmos. Myself personally, I'm doing both. I have DVPN tokens that I'm staking, and I have DVPN tokens that I'm providing liquidity for, both on Osmosis and on SIFChain. This token distribution schedule, what, it keeps dropping every six months until it asymptotically reaches zero, or what? Until it hits 13%. And then from 13%, there's a gradual linear decrease until it goes to zero. And that would be at the ultimate finite limit of tokens, which is 48 billion. Approximately what year would that be? I'll pull up the Medium article. To be honest, I'm not sure. It's, it's a long time. We like, could link uh, to the Medium article later and people yeah. can check later. Long time. That's fine. Huddle drop. Can you give us some details about that? We're going to spend the last couple minutes talking about that and then um, open it up for questions from the audience. We want to really incentivize people that are continuing to secure uh, the Sentinel network and want to be along with us for the long ride. So there are people that are staking DVPN tokens, people that are staking Atom tokens. As people stake them over longer periods of time, there will be greater incentives for um, this huddle drop. It's not going to be like one snapshot where the second you take this snapshot, you're getting these amount of rewards. There will be multiple snapshots. This will all be revealed in, you know, in a formal blog post. I think that some of the specific details are starting worked out, but essentially we want to incentivize people that have been long-term supporters of the Sentinel network. And Sentinel has been around since 2018 and the majority of its uh, life was an ERC-20 token. And people were not earning staking rewards, but they were still helping, you know, be supportive of the network and, um, be active community members. And so people that had the DVP or the SNT tokens as ERC-20s converted them to DVPN tokens on our own chain and have staked them are also earning um, a long-term holder staking reward. 
So we have multiple incentives for people to um, continue to support the network long term. And uh, I feel really fortunate. You know, Chango, we got to hang out in Lisbon at Cosmoverse and Alex was there. And there's so many people that came up and they're like, you're the dude from Sentinel. Like, I've been a longtime supporter. I'm like a validator. I'm running DVPN nodes or like, dude, when the hell is the apps coming out? Like, I, I can't wait to get my hands on them. It's been so cool. And I feel so fortunate to have this like crazy ass blue friend gang and all these people come together and people give a shit about privacy. They really do. And I do too. And so it's, it's something that like gets me fired up to go to work every day to say like, let's bring apps that people are going to use to market and let's incentivize people that have been around a long time and have supported us. This total drop is just another way to do that. The deals will be coming out soon, but any way that we can bring more value to the community, I'm, I'm always looking for that. Yeah, absolutely. People do ideologically and in theory care about privacy, but until we make it as convenient to use as centralized solutions are, then people largely have chosen convenience over privacy, unfortunately, sure. even including myself. And so lots of people who do that um, sometimes pay a hefty price for having done that. But, you know, that's kind of the goal. We're trying to get to privacy and convenience and not making. Yeah, it's uh, a spectrum, right? Use. It's not like you flip a switch and all of a sudden you have perfect privacy. Like I was saying, there's no silver bullet. I guarantee you, Chango, you take more privacy precautions than the average person you pick off the street. So again, it's a spectrum. And we're just trying to provide solutions for people, like you said, that are consumer friendly and that you can easily connect to a VPN and have an end-to-end encrypted connection. This doesn't have to be complicated. You can also compare it uh, like uh, back to comparison with the PCs and my wireframes. I really like that one. So we can compare those solutions with the electric cars. Uh, back in times, uh, everyone was uh, convinced that electric cars should be slow and ugly. And most of them were. Uh, and uh, then Tesla came up and built a car which is uh, looks cool, looks not like a ugly old-fashioned electric car, and actually goes something like 250 miles for one uh, charge. And uh, that's something that uh, we aiming to do as well with the blockchain. So basically, we at Solar Labs and Exidio we're trying to build apps which is works on top of blockchain, but blockchain is somewhere under the hood. So the end customer should not even notice it. The regular person who used the app, they shouldn't care even about blockchain being there. They just should install, tap, and enjoy. And that's something that we perceive. And again, the user story is going to look like something exactly as what I illustrated earlier, which is you're just going to log into a chat app or your new decentralized Twitter app and then it'll just work the exact same, except everything's running uncensorably. And there's like no middleman. It's just going to be peer to peer. That's the dream. I want to just keep eating from the bowl of that magic. Uh, <laughs> I think we're a little ways away. away, but I want to spoon feed that all day. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have this t-shirt then. Oh, I got the last one. I came to the stand like maybe 15 minutes after. And yeah, I was not that lucky to get one. Okay, so very quickly. We'll print more. Yeah, print more, but not money. What's juicier in terms of APY, router returns or staking returns? My intuition from some really back of the napkin math is going to be staking returns, right? But at the same time, with the Yeah, router, but your staking okay. returns aren't giving you end-to-end encryption and encrypted access to the internet. If you're offering bandwidth to the network and you're earning DVPN tokens, those immediately can be used to pay for access to um, VPN. I'm not going to take credit for it. I was part of the, the team that talked about these things, but I think the circular economy of the DVPN token within the, the Sentinel network is brilliant. And it makes a lot of sense. All of the above, I think, 
are worthwhile. But yeah, I think as far as pure ROI, it's also a complicated question, Shango, because you could buy two DVPN tokens for five cents and you put a nickel up and now you're earning percentage-wise, a higher amount percentage-wise than you would if you're offering bandwidth to the network because you offer bandwidth to the network, you need to at least have hardware. You need to have a computer. You need to um, either buy the router or be able to install the software on your computer. So I guess we're also talking about upfront costs, but the answer is do both. Yeah, you don't have to choose. Yeah, but if DVPN price goes up, then your initial cost also goes up too from acquiring the token to stake, which is why it's cheap. No, you, no, if you bought, <laughs> no, the opposite. If you bought them at a lower price and the value goes up, you've already yeah, locked right, in the right. USD value. Right, but right, now right. the value of the returns of the tokens you're getting is greater. Okay, not financial advice, guys. Taking questions from the audience, Best Form asks, if they want DVPN to reach mass adoption, it needs to be easy to run a node for non-tech people. I'd love to become a validator for DVPN, but again, I'm not tech savvy. I want to make a distinction between those two types of nodes. So we talk about validator nodes, and those are the ones that are securing the Sentinel blockchain. And the Sentinel blockchain is what makes the Sentinel network, the peer-to-peer bandwidth network, stay resilient and stay censorship resistant. Because if everyone's validating the blockchain and the blockchain stays active, the blockchain is what houses all of the DVPN nodes. And it's a lot harder to run a validator on the Sentinel blockchain than it is to run a DVPN node and offer bandwidth to the network. To run a validator on the Sentinel blockchain, you need to have at least a million DVPN tokens that you're either designated to your own validator or that people are, are delegating to your validator. There's a lot larger like challenge as far as technical architecture and maintenance and like technical know-how to run a Sentinel validator on the blockchain. I would not recommend that for most people. If you're already into running validator nodes, then let's have a conversation offline and we can see about coming into the, the validator set for Sentinel. But I do recommend that anyone offer bandwidth to the network. And to this question's, person's question, Alex and I are working together on bringing a desktop application to offer bandwidth to the network to make it a lot easier. You probably shouldn't run a validator unless you know exactly what you're doing. So uh, this is like, since it's uh, one of the cornerstones of the blockchain security, it should be maintained by professionals. And uh, if uh, you would like to help community, but you're not a tech guy, DVPN node is the way to go. It would be the same kind of setup as if I were just to set up a router and then configure it so that it talks to the client, the desktop client. Indeed. Daniel Cates asks, my only question now is how can we break away from ISPs to further the decentralization? There needs to be a secure router firmware we can install and decentralized internet service with neighbors. I love where he's going with this. I think that's really cool. And that's kind of the idea of the Helium Network. And that's also the idea of Althea, which is a project in the Cosmos ecosystem, last mile internet access. And then what's Elon's uh, project to be able to provide? Starlink. Yeah, Yeah, Starlink. So I think that like we would love to integrate all of these networks as well. I think Daniel's right on point. It's about continuing to provide more resilience to your point earlier, Chango. We need to have more options and we need to not be handcuffed in the U.S. Like I live in Puerto Rico. I really only have one internet service provider I can choose. I can't make a choice. Making decentralization for internet access, I think, is also crucial. It's just not a problem that we're core focused on solving. But we want to help contribute to the Helium network with applications that or products that we can bring. Yeah, the other thing that could usher in a mesh network is there's a lot of work being done with like five, six, seven G networks, and they're starting to go towards this the tower model rather than laying cables on the ground. 
And so once that happens, I believe it's just going to help us leapfrog that entire like fiber optic system that ISPs have base have cornered, basically. Anyway, I'm not an expert there, just making some commentary. Slot Hunter says the price of free chat is for the better, but the darkest regions of the internet will also make good use of it. This is in reference to his earlier comment. He says, I agree, but it will enable a lot of scum like pedos and drug dealers, I guess. Well, uh, in reference to our conversation about free chat, uncensorable chat and what have you. This is the common thing that is uh, being used uh, to advocate censorship in, uh, all across the globe, basically. All the politicians who are corrupt as fuck, they're using the same rhetoric, the same phrases to justify censorship that they, uh, they are trying to establish. The truth is simple. We're all breathing air and uh, pedo and drugs dealers are doing so as well. You cannot make a lock and give a keys to uh, good guys in order to uh, make sure that bad guys won't uh, have keys uh, at any point of time. You're just either making everything secure for everyone or you're making it insecure for everyone. We should not make uh, any trade deals. We should not look for any compromise for privacy in order to achieve more social security, I would say, because otherwise... Most of the governments, they claiming that we should not use end-to-end decryption and messengers so we can combat terrorism. But this is exactly a goal of terrorists to prevent people from executing their rights. It's uh, like a really basic human right for freedom of speech, for uh, private messaging and so on. And if uh, some terrorist group or some pedos or drug dealers group, the things they are doing is leading to regular people not having enough instruments to protect their privacy, then not government wins, not people wins, but those people who are malicious actors. So basically what we need to understand and what we need to deal with is uh, that privacy is going to be there. And uh, if we will build a tools which is safe for normal people, but not safe for criminals, criminals will find some another tool and they will use it. There's no sense to uh, make it like a weaker in order for like special services to prosecute those people that uh, this guy mentioned. To add to that, the hopeful note is that there will be parallel economies that emerge because right now what we have is something like we have the end result of what this kind of thinking has led to, which is, well, let's have a completely moderated curated, trust-based web where we allow this higher echelon of political elites to decide what is disinformation, what is considered good speech versus bad speech, and all of that. And that effectively makes it so that we don't have freedom of speech online, even though in the meat space, we're supposed to have that, right? There's another thing with pedos and drug dealers. Well, that's what the authorities are supposed to enforce on anyway, not something that the online world or anybody who builds software is supposed to enforce. It's what law enforcement should be enforcing. And it's not our jobs. On this online world of just like heavily curated Reddit, Twitter, whatever, people like Alex Jones get deplatformed, you know, Jordan Peterson get demonetized. Those voices get silenced. Meanwhile, actual pedophiles, Ghislaine Maxwell is a super user on Reddit and she decides what information is true and not on the subreddit called Our Politics, Reach. which is the biggest subreddit in the world. It's kind of backwards, isn't it? <laughs> 100%. 
we need to provide access for people. People like to Alex's point are going to do what they do, but we can't let a few people decide who's going to deplatform who. This whole idea of like the benevolent dictator, once that person that's that we think is should be the one that's telling everyone who can and who cannot voice their opinion online, that benevolent dictator dies one day and someone else has to take his seat. So we shouldn't give all the authority to one person. We should provide access for individuals and then let law enforcement do their job when there are things that need to be taken care of. Yeah, and especially if we give away that power to some political elite or oligarch, as we've seen with, you know, Facebook and Twitter, like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey are completely under the thumb of the American government right now. Jen Psaki explicitly said we are working with social media networks to combat disinformation, which means there's this pairing of private and public sectors now and they're colluding, right? The public sector is going to private sector and saying, telling you what can and cannot be said online, effectively infringing on the First Amendment. And it's so, never been easier to control the narrative at a global scale because there's almost 4 billion people that use Facebook. And so if you're able to identify and use natural language processing and AI tools to scrape any content that you don't want out there, you're able to control the narrative even better than when we just had big news networks that disseminate all the information and big newspapers. And even then it was easy to control the narrative. And now it's become even easier because we're all using the same tools. Providing censorship resistance and being able to get end-to-end encrypted connection and to be able to speak our minds and speak freely is a valuable thing. I want to be able to read everything on Wikipedia and then make my own informed decision, whether what's right or what's wrong. Lassie Maxwell is a great person. I personally don't, but like, Anyone should be able to make that informed decision and they should be able to read about her history. And the same thing should be able to happen with Alex Jones, whether he's a great guy or not. We should be able to get access to information. I think it's that basic. It's the same with the Donald Trump, actually. He got uh, deplatformed from Twitter, from all Facebook products and so on. We can say that he's a good or bad person. It doesn't matter, but he's now not able to reach his audience. There is a lot, hell a lot of people who would like to hear from him, and he is uh, basically being silenced by third parties who are in control of uh, all of this shit. So even we now see how government interfering with their own laws and they interfering with the elections by putting uh, some of the candidates, some of the politicians under basically a censorship. Yeah, and that is just an absolute testament to how powerful these third parties have become and how much power we have given up to them. And so now if we are able to move forwards, but also backwards, backwards in terms of going back to Web 1.0, when all of these protocols were actually decentralized and we had a bigger internet to kind of play around in instead of this like centralized Web 2 paradigm where all of us are just hanging out in, you know, four or five watering holes. And those watering holes are completely controlled. And even the sitting president of the United States last year could be deplatformed and silenced and eliminated from existence in the online world. That's just insane. And so if we take that power back and create a network of protocols where nobody, no third party gets this power, then we are actually moving forward and seeing progress. Okay. We will. McGregor asks, how will multiple and fiat payment options work on Sentinel and will it add value to the DVPN token? 
Along with Exedia, we're working on a bunch of tools which will be used by white labels building apps uh, based on Sentinel and by Exedia's app as well, which will allow people to purchase TVPN tokens with their fiat payments instruments, such as Apple and app purchases for Apple platforms or basic credit card details through the different payment processors such as Stripe and many others. And uh, we will extend the possibilities of this system in order to get to our customers uh, every way to pay for a DVPN service they would like to. So basically, if you would like to pay in cash, you will be able to do so. If you would like to pay with a credit card, you can do so. And if you would like to pay with some other crypto, you will still be able to do so uh, thanks to IBC technology. That's going to add a lot of value to the DVPN token as well because it becomes uh, one root currency for a VPN, which is used as a constant and uh, we're taking all other currencies and uh, converting into the DVPN in order a VPN to operate. And when you say converting it, what that actually looks like and what that mechanism is, is an on-chain purchase. So it's actually supporting the token and purchasing it and withdrawing it from the circulating supply and bringing it into the economy of um, the Sentinel VPN circular economy. That also creates pressure for people to know that this token is gaining value because people are staking it and people are using it in LP, but it also creates value for the token because as people are using DVPN, the network, this is creating kind of a natural buy pressure for the token on the market. And of course, none of this is financial advice. Just to disclaim again. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. I sincerely hope you found the information contained in it educational and useful for your personal learning development. I understand that the space moves so fast and there's too much information for a single person to digest. Even for someone like me, someone who works in this space full time, it can be overwhelming. My goal with Interchain FM is to serve only high signal information in easy to digest courses so that you're not overwhelmed with too much information and that you leave only with the context that matters. Interchain FM airs live roughly every Thursday on my Twitter handle. That's at C-H-J-A-N-G-O or on Reality Sarina's YouTube channel. If you miss our live sessions, you won't miss a single episode when you visit interchain.fm. I hope to see you at the next show.